Hello, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. Many of you know that I started this series as a way to share my academic conference presentations to a wider audience, but then I expanded the podcast in spring of 2020 to bring you the audio versions of my pandemic pedagogy conversations I've been hosting on YouTube. The conversations that I'm going to be having for the upcoming 2020-2021 school year focus not just on the ideas of teaching history during and after the pandemic like the spring series did, but also history-adjacent ideas that we can use to think about making our history teaching more responsive and broad to the world that students are engaging in today. Like in the spring, the conversations on the podcast are unedited conversations, so you might hear buffering or the repetition of a question or an answer, but the content fundamentally remains the same as the video. Enjoy this version of Pandemic Pedagogy for fall, winter 2020-2021. I just want to flag that because we film this at two separate times, the uh, volume is going to be a lot quieter for the interview. So if this is a comfortable volume for you, <laughs> um, you better turn it up even more because um, this is this is way louder than the sound is for the, um, the conversation. We'll work on that as we move through the series. Thanks for understanding. Hi everyone, Dr. Samantha Cotrera here for the Imagining a New We video blog, a video series designed to help history teachers and other history educators teach history in ways that are more meaningful, transformative, and inclusive for their students. I have been doing the pandemic pedagogy conversations since the end of March, and the idea was to talk with history educators from a variety of different fields about how they thought about history, the teaching of history, both during COVID and after COVID. And as we all know, COVID is now no longer just COVID, but we can think of this period as wrapped in the Black Lives Matter movement and po populist politics in the States and also in Canada. And so it's been really great to kind of have these continuity of conversations across the six or seven months that we've been living in kind of COVID times, but it's been also really great to be able to connect with so many different people during that time. And that's why I'm really excited for who I get to speak to today, because we connected in May, I think, like May or June, and we just didn't have an opportunity to talk until now. And I'm really excited to be able to bring his perspectives to this conversation, because I think he has a lot to say about history, interpretation, commemoration, and how we are situated, how we live our lives, the intersection of these stories. Today I'm talking with Dontavius Williams. He is the sole proprietor and sole storyteller of The Chronicles of Adam. The Chronicles of Adam is a, um, moving, uh, a moving interpretive project based on primary sources, location, um, the, the stories of different people who were enslaved primarily in the United States. He takes a variety of different primary sources, experiences, storytelling, the site that he is in, and like I said, he tells a story of the past in a way that brings people in. And as a historical interpreter, as a small business owner, as an educator in a variety of different ways to be an educator, I just felt like Dontavius would bring so much to this conversation and I can't wait to talk with him. It's funny because he is just like, my bachelor's degree is in business. I hope 
Oh, that's okay. And I'm like, yeah, it's okay. Because we all come to these stories so differently. And um, I know he's had experiences as a classroom teacher, as a historical interpreter, but I think also just as somebody that is living in the States now and trying to interpret history in ways that are more inclusive, the, the ways that are more honest about the uh, about what the past is and how we need to understand the histories of enslavement in our histories in North America. I'm just really excited to be able to talk with him and meet him like we've never actually met before. So let's go over to Zoom and talk, talk to Dontavius. Dontavius, thank you so much for joining me today. It's so great that we're able to connect because I know we connected in the spring and it's it feels even more relevant to connect now in the fall. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. So do you, before we get started, do you want to introduce yourself and the Chronicles of Adam um, before we just like jump in? Sure, sure. Uh, my name is Dontavius Williams. I am the owner of the Chronicles of Adam, which is a um, living history interpretation, um, which is in the first person. Uh, I don't limit myself to first person interpretation. I, limit, I don't limit myself at all, honestly. Um, but I typically um, do first person interpretation through the Chronicles of Adam, through storytelling. So what I do is I embody a um, gentleman by the name of Adam and I tell a story that is related to um, the lives of the enslaved. The only thing that we really know about Adam is his value, his job, and his family makeup. Everything else is done from research uh, from local areas like where I'm from here in South Carolina, as well as um, whatever site I go to. So say I come to um, Virginia, I do the research for that particular area and gear it to the story that, uh, that I'm going to tell. I always tell people that the Chronicles of Adam uh, transcends time and location. So it doesn't matter where we are. We can be on a plane in the middle of the air and I can tell the story of Adam and tie it to whoever or whatever. Um, I am, again, from South Carolina, uh, here in this, a small town called Edgemore, South Carolina, which is about 45 minutes from Charlotte, North Carolina. It's the largest uh, city near us. So that's me, just a country boy from South Carolina. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, for joining us all the way from South Carolina. I don't know why I say us. I guess I just assume the audience. Um, but I mean, being in Toronto, <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, very much a, a city, right? Like a huge city. So it's so interesting to transcend place in having these conversations right now. So thank you again. Mm -hmm. Not a problem. And like to... To just like bring up Chronicles of Adam, it's like a layered, like you're layering historical records onto each other. And if I understand correctly as well, there is a little bit of a little bit of creative nonfiction to that to make these records more of like this embodied story, correct? Yes, yes. So I always tell people it's like a faction story. So it's, it's, it's a fictional story, but it's based on fact. Uh, so you have a little Dontavious in the story. There are elements of my own personal narrative um, that are wrapped up in the story to actually bring to life 
some of these uh, narratives that we have that we have read. So, say for instance, we look at food. Um, that's something that brings us all together, uh, and and people want to know what did the enslaved eat? How did they, you know, make it with such small rations of food? Um, and so we talk about hunting and trapping foods. And so I talk about my experiences growing up in the country of catching rabbits in a rabbit box. Um, so it's just, it's those things because we know the enslaved couldn't necessarily hunt, but they could trap food. It was easier. That the hunting is time consuming, but you can set a trap and go and get it at any point. You know, I saw this tweet, uh, it was about a month ago, and I think it's been deleted because I have looked for it quite a lot, um, uh, that said something like, we owe it to the people whose voices have been lost in the past to ensure that those, ensure those stories are told, even if there aren't the historical records. Like, we can get so, we can get so wrapped up in, like, um, evidence, 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 that we can't be like, no, it's important to these histories that we're bringing in this mix of fact and stuff that we don't know, um, to, to come together to be able to imagine these lives that don't have these same type of records. Mm -hmm. And it's that reading between the lines, the nuances of history, I don't know why I have this ink pen. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a quill pen. It's just Adam up in a plane with a with a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's the it's the nuanced of, approach to to telling these these stories to kind of level that level that playing field. Um, and as you said, the imagining of sorts. It, it it takes a bit of that because many times whenever we're talking history, we we see things um, through our 2020 lenses. Uh, and, and so with what I do, the way that I do storytelling, I literally draw you back in time to 1840, 1850, to be able to tell these stories. And again, we can be in the middle of a classroom with computers and technology all around us, but through the art of storytelling, you are drawn to the plantation with no props, just me and my story in the middle of a gym, you know, gymnasium or auditorium, you know, although I may have a, um, a microphone on or you may, I may stand in front of them, that doesn't matter because the, the story is painted in a way in which you are taken back in time and you don't see anything but the plantation that Adam is describing. And when we learn history from stories and storytellers such as yourself, we also are learning from an oral history tradition, from from indigenous, from uh, from indigenous peoples, from peoples who are former for that were enslaved that come from these African storytelling traditions. Like we're kind of decolonizing. That's something we talk a lot about in Canada. We're kind of decolonizing the histories by allowing space for these ways of transmitting stories and histories and legacies to other generations. So it's cool that you're like naming that, like the storytelling aspect is such a key element of, of the ways you envision your work. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so many lessons that can be learned. Mm -hmm. um, we get the, as a former classroom educator, I used to tell my students all the time, you're gonna get this content regardless. 
that's my job. I have to teach this content. I have to go standard by standard and you have to get that. However, before you leave my class, you will be a valuable citizen to this world. Um, and so I would do that through storytelling. Um, it, I didn't necessarily go into character or anything, but I would have some sort of, of quip or a quote or photo or something to be able to kind of teach the lesson before I teach the lesson so that they get it. You can always come back to what well, Mr. Williams told me about, he played Strange Fruit when he was teaching about uh, racism in America. And he played that song and I remember that. So now I, I can come back to that. You understand? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so that's something tangible. That's how I learned growing up. My grandfather would sit me down under the tree with him. He taught me how to work on the lawnmowers and he taught me things about life, but through his own personal stories. Um, and the class that I'm taking, my professor is 80 plus years old and he ties his personal stories. This man has 82 years of experience in the business world and in the army. And he ties all of that together to be able to teach us different aspects of business ethics and legal issues. So it's, it's the storytelling component is really, really, really important, in my opinion, to be able to help students and just people in general hold on to what they've been taught. So it's funny that you're, that we're talking about storytelling. And again, like I, we're not even into the questions yet because, so I teach a couple college classes and of course, like many educators, I was running them, um, you know, synchronously so people could join, but I also recorded them so that they could join later. And one student was like, yeah, like I kind of watched the video, but like I, I tried to just fast forward through them to get to the main element that you were talking about. <laughs> I remember being like, oh no, dude, like those stories, yeah, like the story kind of has a point. You got to listen to the whole story. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize how embedded like storytelling was kind of implicitly embedded in my pedagogy until I had said that. And you know, this is one of the things that we can talk about, but like, I wonder if that is going to be lost a little bit with online education. Cause like he said, I, I just fast forward it to try to get to the key element, like what you were actually talking about and not this mm -hmm. random story, but like the random story is the thing, right? And it's mm -hmm. not random. It's a very specific story. It just seems random until you get to the point. Right, right. I, I remember early on when I, like a freshman in college, um, taking a history class, and it was a world history class, so of course it's everywhere. It, you're talking European history through American history, and so you have to learn all of these ancient things, and the professor just goes through and is just rattling off facts, and none of it resonated, and I didn't do well. I didn't, as much as I love history, as much yeah. as I love learning, I didn't do well because none of it resonated with me as a student. And, and, and I feel sometimes whenever we are not inclusive, when we don't provide that tangible evidence, those tangible things to be able to help us to hold on to what we're learning, a lot of it gets lost in the shuffle. So, um, and I may be moving 
uh, farther ahead in your questions. <laughs> I know. You know <laughs> in, <laughs> I may be it was a good thing and the bad thing about like talking beforehand and like chatting beforehand, right? So, but no, keep yeah. going. It's great. Um, but it's just, you, you just kind of have to hold, you have to have something to hold on to. But to answer your question about, you know, where, what we may lose to some, yeah. Yeah, I want to just get to the point so I can just answer the questions. It does feel like we are moving to that kind of world you know, where it just punch a button and go. And I do feel like some of that will be lost. But those of us who are doing the work and who believe in the art of storytelling, who believe in um, this particular style of teaching, I believe we are inspiring other learners to be teachers of our type. Um, I, I have seen some of my former students who have now gone on into education themselves and I watch them and I'm like, I'm seeing me, you know, <laughs> all over again. And it's, it's really cool um, to be able to see that. And so I do have hope, but there is that level of fear that, that this could be lost um, or not seen as important. Well, when you're saying too that like this brings in a level of inclusivity because we can all be connected by stories. And Thomas King, who's an indigenous writer um, on the land that we call Canada, he is written, well, he had a, it was like a, a Massey lecture, the Canadians would know what that is, but that translated into a book that, and the, the book title and the point is that the truth about stories is that's all we are. Like we're all made up of stories. And so when we forget those storied connections, that's where, that's where violence can be really. So let's, let's, move, let's move to the questions in order to come back to these elements. Um, okay. And so, you know, um, as, as we've talked about, when I started this, uh, the pandemic pedagogy series at the end of March, I had three questions. Um, and the first is, uh, has this made you think about history any different? And of course, at late March, when I said this, it was COVID. But now, as we're in the fall, this is Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, the second round of protests, although they never really stopped, but like a different, mm -hmm. um, uh, like the different uh, protests with the NBA players, the American election, like there's so much more of this, I think, than when we started in March. And, you know, I was saying to you earlier that I have the overhead light on and I haven't had the overhead light on for an interview since my last video on like March 13th or something. And it's so interesting that like literally we've gone through a whole season that I no longer have the like natural light. That so mm -hmm. much has changed since that, for, that question first came up and I'm really excited to like hear your thoughts. So how's the idea of history at all changed for you during this very interesting 2020 year since March? It has, it's made me look back. Uh, before I go further into that, um, mm -hmm. I believe in the principle of Sankofa. Um, right. it's, yes. it's, like an, it's an African principle of, of moving forward, but reaching back to get that what was forgotten. Um, and so the Sankofa bird is set up with his feet facing forward, 
but his head is turned back to get like an egg or something. Um, so I live by that principle. Um, so in thinking about history, um, I'm reaching back. It makes me reach back and think as a kid, was I taught this stuff in school? You know, and how can I right those wrongs? Uh, it makes me think about the, those people here in America who don't necessarily understand the fight for Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. um, those who have such a, a negative undertone for people of color. Um, and I listen to those stories. I go back and I look at some of those old texts and I think about where we are now and where we can fill in those gaps. So maybe we can reach back and get some of the old stuff, fix it, and then move forward with a new way, a new method, a new, uh, a new message, believe it or not, because um, these, the, the textbooks that we have, they, they have a message that's that's written in it that that's an underlying tone but as children you don't understand how you are being brought up to think as as society but I, I think we have to change the way that we are doing that we have to include everyone's story because they all do matter um in 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 doing that a lot of times we 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 forget and intentionally leave out things because it's uncomfortable parts of history. Um, right now in America, we're having this whole thing of removing statues um, because they remind us of our painful past. Whereas I could agree to a certain degree um, of removing uh, some things, but my heart as a historian says, why can't we leave it change or add another means of interpreting that history like in richmond the statue of robert e lee mm -hmm. how it's a lot of people have sprayed it up and it's graffiti that needs to stay they don't need to clean it up because that's now a different part of history you know it tells the story of robert e lee president of the confederacy and in his greatness but it also speaks to this movement that's happening now that hopefully someone 100 years from now, 57 years from now, will be able to look back on and say, my uncle did that because he was fighting for my freedoms today. Yeah, like we're certainly, it's certainly something happening in Canada as well. And I agree, like, you know, with the, the monument thing, I don't, I'm not really like passionate one way or the other about that particular thing because I I don't like because I'm so interested in, in in youth and I don't really think that like that's how youth are understanding history like I would just like you much rather it's that those spaces are create are there is those spaces represent resistance and resilience and art and response and so like keep it up keep it down like let's ensure that there's constantly that resistance and that response and so it's not up there unquestioned but that mm -hmm. you constantly are able to like think through those questions um and and like for us to to remember 
the, the, the racist past, the sexist past, mm -hmm. you know, the mm -hmm. violent past. Like the Lee Monument, I, I went there recently, a few weeks ago, about three weeks ago, I was there. And um, <laughs> before um, all of this stuff happened with, with, the, with the movement, um, the Lee Monument was like what I would call my grandma's living room. You don't go in there. That's where the good furniture is. You don't bother it. You definitely don't step on it. And we have a running joke in our family that um, the green carpet was the living room. As kids, if you stepped on the green carpet, you were in trouble because <laughs> grandma changed the carpet. And even as an adult today, we've changed the house. And so we flipped the house. And so now the den is now on the green carpet. And I don't sit in the den. <laughs> I still do not sit in that space you know, as, as a grown man, but the Lee Monument was like that space to me um, prior to this. Now um, that it's been changed or like I say, modified or, or improved, um, some people would <laughs> not like that response, but now that it has been improved, it has become a community space. They have community yeah. gardens. They, um, have basketball goals and people with skateboards they're skating on the sidewalks around it i mean you have young men sitting you know on the monument having conversations and you see uh mixed races of people having engaged in good conversation it was so empowering to see that um and and whenever people are empowered to do that um, it, it just, it, it feels so good. Like, I remember the first time being able to, to walk on the green carpet, you know, at the house. It was, it was such a, you know, good feeling. So I could just imagine what the people there in Richmond feel like being able to now say that this is now our space that we are claiming, you know, as we sit under the nose of this Confederate president. <laughs> Well, you know, that makes me think, too, of, like, if the statues just get removed, then there is no room to process the history. Because, like, the green carpet in your grandmother's house, for example, you can now, like, start talking about, like, why... <laughs> why it still scares you to step on it mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. like maybe your parents or your grandmother if she is alive or if she was alive yeah, you can, she like, imagine that conversation of like well this is why it was so important to keep this room like pristine right and mm -hmm. so through that dialogue of like this is why I was uncomfortable this is why it was important to keep it keep it pristine that you're in a better position in like a decade, for example, to mm -hmm. to make it a room that you feel more comfortable in. Like maybe those monument spaces that right now demonstrate the like the activism and have the graffiti on it. Maybe those spaces need to be like a like a transition space for a while, so that people can mm -hmm. come together and talk about like the 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 pain of it and also the empowering elements of seeing it um seeing it reinterpreted through <laughs> through spray paint for example because mm -hmm. it's got some stuff you got some very empowering messages 
that are spray painted on there but it's some very painful messages that yeah. are spray painted on there as well. And you can see how it is. And, and this is the youth of today that is, that is speaking out, Yeah, you know, that saying, Hey, enough is enough. You know, this is how I'm feeling, but this is how I'm seeing things move forward. Um, and we, we have to be able to listen um, and, and, and to transform it. We need to use that and learn from the youth. Yeah and figure out how we can, so to go back to your question, to figure out how we can figure out how to teach history, you know, allow them to kind of lead the way mm -hmm. to a certain degree. We don't have all the answers, but in order for us to be able to connect history to the lives of these young people, we, we can't connect if we don't understand. And you like, know. So, I, so I did research with youth and in classrooms about 10 years ago, my book, like, I think probably by the time that I put this up, my book will be out, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We, but Americans can read it too. <laughs> that like, the youth that I spoke to, youth, like mostly black youth, youth that were failing their Canadian history class, they were like, we want to learn Canadian history. But like, I look around the room at this multicultural class and it is not the history that you're teaching. So you got to bring it to the table. You got to bring the histories to the table that are important to us. Yeah. And one of the lines in the book is like, we need to demonstrate to young people that we know that their stories are absent and we recognize the pain in the disavowal of those stories. And so it's kind of interesting to think of those, those monument spaces as a place perhaps that can allow for allow for some of that processing because that is needed to move forward in a more just society. Yeah. I had a student just two years ago, um, he was a fourth grader, say to me, I hate social studies. I hate history class. And every time we, I would turn, you know, they're all in one class, same time. So it's like, okay, guys, take out your social studies notebooks. We're here to he would put his head down and he would go to sleep mm -hmm. and it would be, it would, it would take the world to explode, to wake him up. Now I was like, and I felt so defeated for so many weeks because I'm like, this kid is going to miss this stuff. And he's got to, you know, if the principal comes in, I'm in trouble. You know, I've got to explain the sleeping kid. And, you know, it's, it was so many things going through my mind as an educator, but most of all, my heart, was broken because he didn't want to learn. And so in conversation with this student, you know, at lunchtime, we just, that I would have Mr. Williams time every now and then, you know, because as a teacher, you only get that much time to eat your lunch <laughs> when you're sharing lunch in the classroom, I mean, in the cafeteria. So we would sit and I asked him, I said, what is it about history that you don't like? Because you're always talking about your grandma and how your grandma um, told you this and told you that about like our local history here um, and you were so excited about it he said I just don't like it I don't get it like well I gotta learn about explorers and stuff and this is that's stupid I don't see me fourth grade mm -hmm. it changed the entire way that I taught history the rest of that year 
and it changed the way that I thought about how I was going to go into the next year because I was going to have that same student for fifth grade. Um, and so fast forward to his fifth grade year, uh, I put him, I began to put him in charge a little bit more when it, when it came for in his fourth grade year. So I would tell him to pass out the notebooks. I have him to help me do certain things, um, kind of putting him, getting him busy. And so fifth grade, we're teaching and he's not in his desk. He's sitting on my stool where I normally sit to teach. And I'm teaching, like I'm doing my good teaching. Like I'm breaking it down. I'm, you know, I'm doing, you know how you know when you know you're doing Yeah, it. you're like, I, this is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you, you're beginning to see their eyes, their little hands are going up. And all of a sudden, he pops up off of the stool and jumps up in the floor and says, I love social studies. Oh my God. I, I looked at him, I was like, what? <laughs> okay, guys, you close your notebooks. Um, lesson is over. You can have 10 minutes of, of, of a brain break. Come here, little boy. <laughs> <laughs> Your brain still needs to stay. <laughs> I needed to be able to, because it, it the, if the top of my head could have lifted off, it would have. And I looked at him and I grabbed him. I hugged him. I said, you made my day. I said, what changed your mind? He said, well, Mr. Williams, you helped me to see me. You helped me to see me in these stories. He said, before, it just didn't make sense to me. And it was just a bunch of dates and, and just stuff. He said, but this right here, what you're teaching, it matches what my grandma was telling me. You know, it, it's, I'm able to see what she was telling. And it was just their family history is all she was sharing. Right. But what I did was I took the standards and I had to think about how to make these standards look right for these little brown boys because I had all brown boys in my class, but I was teaching a Europeanized lesson. So I had to be able to figure out how to change that to make it connect with those students, not change the standards, keep the standards as they are, but figure out different ways to be able to put them in the story and empower them. Because a lot of times I know history books from years ago in the 50s and, and 60s, when you talk about slavery and, and, the, and the transatlantic slave trade, those Africans were seen as savages and they were, you know, coming in and they were, you know, Christian, you know, giving them God to make their lives better. But these people were fine before the Europeans came. They And, you know, so we would have conversations like that. I kind of put it out there for them whenever we talked about Columbus. You know, these are the facts. Now let's talk about it. Should we celebrate Columbus Day? You know, why do you think we should or should not? It was just, it was, I want to hear what you have to say, not you hear what I have to say, you know. Yeah, that is such, that is such a powerful, that's such a powerful story. And it reminds me of, so there, you know, so learning theory says that students have to uh, make the choice to learn, right? Like you already said that, that is kind of baked into a lot of learning theory and that some students will refuse to learn, like willed not learning as a way to, as a way to resist content. And I have 
like I, I've done a conference presentations that I'm saying that like the 15 year old black students in this Canadian history class with their earbuds in, they are, they are practicing the like, that's right. They are practicing the, the like salvation of their ancestors by ignoring the fact that they're being ignored. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I try to like engage in education in a way that's like invitational. Like I keep putting invitations out. If you take it, that's great. If you don't, that's okay as well. But the, when students don't take the invitations, that means that like I need to change something. And that really shifted, that really shifted the ways that I would engage in a Canadian history class. And I remember this 15 year old boy, he was a black boy. Like he never, like he never paid attention in class. And one day he was like, miss, you deserve a high five today. And I was like, yes. Like that was, that felt really good because like that was the right amount of ingredients to make history, to make them trust me enough to then we can keep co-creating lessons together. Mm -hmm. Because just like you said, like, does it mirror what your grandparents are telling you? What does it mirror the life that you have seen around you? Um, mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that story. That was just such a great, powerful, example of what history needs to do really and the the crazy thing is so with me my degree is in business so i, I don't have a degree in education at all i'm non-traditional oh. i'm unorthodox i guess you guys have like a slightly different system like do you need a bachelor of education to teach at a school you you traditionally do uh -huh. But we have systems where you can go through and, you know, and it's called, some of them is PACE program here in South Carolina, uh -huh. and in North Carolina, it's called lateral entry. So you take those classes, you know, to be able to help you um, okay. it, through education. It's the same stuff, but, I mean, again, I'm leaning on, on my bachelor's degree, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is business. <laughs> And so, or, or common sense is, is mainly my approach um, right. to the classroom. And those teachers who made the biggest difference to me. Growing up, I always wanted to be an educator, always. But whenever I went to college and realized everything that I was going to have to learn, and when I started seeing some of the stuff, I didn't believe in it. I didn't believe in some of the methods. It was, it was too it was too much to teach a certain group of students, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, so it was, it was that, that, that research base, but it was just for a certain group of students. And it didn't feel right to me, so I changed my major. You know, I changed my major. Of course, like, like every college student, I changed my major three times and settled on business. I was like, I'm just ready to get out of school. But, <laughs> but whenever I happened it was by chance that I stepped into the classroom um, as a long-term substitute and fell in love with it um, but I went off of my motivation was those teachers that made the biggest impact for me um, and then I had some mentor teachers as well who used some of the the, the, the methods that they that they were taught but they had 25 years in and so that was what I leaned on. And whenever I would see those first year teachers come out with all of their 
uh, undergrad information in their head and the kids are running over them, they're crying every day. I'm like, well, you might need to call so-and-so <laughs> or you might need to do this because my, I didn't have any of those issues. And when I did, I would always come back and think about it. And I was ruling the classroom by ruling the classroom. And that's not the best, that wasn't the best way for me. They weren't learning, they were resisting and they weren't doing the work. So um, I had to figure out how to connect with them. Um, and, and I think that's, as I think about education, I think about how we are moving forward with education. To me, that's gonna be the, the best way. And we're gonna have to figure out how to do it virtually, you know, because I don't know if we will ever get back to a normal sit down in the classroom, you know, style education. I feel like it'll always be some sort of hybrid style education because we see that we can do it now. Um, and if it's cheaper to do it this way, I'm, I'm speaking in America, I'm not sure how it is in Canada, but if it's cheaper to do it this way, save a dollar, close a school. Oh, that's certainly, I mean, it, it's certainly very similar in Canada. Um, it's certainly very similar in Canada. And, you know, like that was one of the reasons why I started this series, because I was like, I also kind of envision how important connecting is to teaching and learning history. Um, the lighting is so bad in my apartment right now. I can see I'm buffering. Um, anyway, um, but like, virtually is difficult and like you know we're having these great conversations now and that's been wonderful to connect but what if you are starting with students that are that are already going to be resistant to education for a variety of different reasons uh, and like I like let's just be clear I'm not blaming students for this right like mm -hmm. it is difficult as an educator to connect for a variety of different reasons so Let's just move to the second question, which is, do you think history teaching is going to change after this moment? Because this notion of connecting and the notion of being able to see your own histories, none of that is new by any means, like that those are hundreds mm -hmm. of years old, but there's something about this moment that is happening right now that I think young people are going to demand different um, teachers are seeing things differently. So do you think history is going to, teaching history is going to change after this uh, in, in positive ways and negative ways, do you see the potential of it as well? Mm -hmm. I do, I do, I do. Um, simply because students have access right in the palm, literally in the palm of their hand mm -hmm. um, to, to know and to learn whatever they want to learn, whatever they are interested in um, and to pretty much fact check you or, or whatever, you know, uh, yeah. the days of the teacher, the days of the teacher being the, the end all be all for a particular subject area, those days are done. Because if there's a student that is remotely um, excited about a particular subject matter and, and they do any reading of their own, whether it be right or whether it be something that's completely, you know, College of Wikipedia, where people have just put a bunch of garbage out, um, they will have invested in that. So we as educators have to figure out how to, how to navigate that system. You know, it, as hard as it is to say, they are in the driver, the students are in the driver's seat. 
you know, and I'm saying it's not hard for me to say it because I understand that there's a level of control that I have as an educator, but at the end of the day, they do drive the vehicle, but I'm kind of the GPS to kind of navigate you to where you need to be uh, before you lose my class. Or like you should be the GPS, right? Like that's a good metaphor to think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean they are in control, you know, of, of, of their own of their own journey through the education system. I can't make you log in every day, you know. I can't make you come to school every day. I can encourage it, but um and that sounds kind of defeated, right? Um <laughs> but No, it doesn't it's, in fact I think it sounds really em empowering actually. Okay, okay. But it, it's, the, the reality is I, I, can't, I can't make students show up. You know, I, as much as I'm like Thursday in my own class, in my own classroom, um, that I'm in this class uh, now, there was a, the professor was having a difficult time logging in. And um, there was a particular student in the class. Ten minutes. We had been, we knew the professor was there. You know, and so there's, there was a rule, you know, the 15-minute rule. They don't show up, we're gone. But we knew the professor was there, but he was having technical difficulties. The student was like, man, I'm not going to stay here. We're, we're here, you know, a video conference. Man, I'm not going to stay here all, all morning, you know. I, I'm, I'm going to go. The professor is in the classroom having a difficult time, and the student leaves. And I'm like, that was so crazy. Why would you do that? You know, because you're missing out on so much. And that was, it was an absence. But then at the end of the semester, you're going to be looking crazy because, you know, you weren't where you were supposed to be. And so that's just kind of how, how I look at it. We have to put the students in control, but let them know their bounds. You know, let them have their own control of their, themselves, but give them their, their bounds and let them know that, you know, you can do what you do, but at the end of the day, if you don't go this route, you're going to end up not doing so well. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but yeah, uh, it's going to have to change. We're going to have to, I keep going back to the inclusiveness. We're going to have to include them on this journey um, because if we don't, they're not going to want anything to do with it. They're not. What's happening here in America is kind of affecting the world around us. Definitely. Um, and the, the things that are happening with, with this Black Lives Matter movement, with the election, again, like I said earlier, all of this information is right at the hands, in the hands of these children. With, with, even with COVID-19, I have a, a six-year-old cousin who is knowledgeable about President Trump and the things that are being said and you know, and the divisiveness that is happening um, in America, uh, and, and he's six. Even with COVID-19, he's making all, and it's nothing that we're, it's not like we have these conversations at the kitchen table around him. It's what's in front of him. He's a YouTube, one of those YouTube babies. And so whether we want him to see it or not, through ads, advertisements, and, and things like that, um, he's able to kind of see these things and pick up on what's happening in the world around him. And sometimes it's divisive and we have to there and fix that. Um, but the, these young people now, again, because it's there, 
they're going to demand to know more. Um, they're, they're going to begin to ask questions. Um, no matter where I am, um, I had a, a young person come up to me and ask me um, why police brutality is the way that it is and, you know, if it would ever change. Uh, because they had been doing some research and some reading because, you know, to kind of see where, where it started. And they brought up the civil rights movement and, you know, even the, the police patrols, you know, from the times of slavery. Um, and I was like, whoa, like you really went deep. <laughs> and, and, and the guy was like, yeah, because I want to know, because I'm a, he, was a, he was a young black male. He said, because I'm afraid, I'm afraid to be black in America today. So I want to know how I can make it better. You know, these students are looking for answers to be able to even survive in the real world. Um, that's why I said that we have to figure out how to change it. That's so powerful what you just said. They're looking for answers to survive in this world. You know, a lot of the things that you're saying about like young people kind of being in the driver's seat or like we have to ensure that we're teaching things that will entice them to stay. A lot of times it's referenced in really negative ways. Like, oh, we're gonna need to do like a song and a dance to keep students in school. And like, who do students think they are that they're not here to learn from us first? But I love the way that you are framing it as like, no, we need to do better. We need to do better for these young people. We need to ensure that that they are getting the education that's going to speak to their lives. It's going to allow them to survive. I just, like, that's just so powerful. Thank you so much for bringing that to this conversation. No problem. I've just seen it done wrong because I have been that student, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. wherein the, the teacher tells me, you think the way that I think, and if you don't think the way that I think, you fail. And that's so unfair. You know, that is so unfair. Now, you can't, you can't dispute dates and times and names. You can't do that. But how I interpret a particular subject matter is how I interpret it. And it's worth you as the teacher listening to how I interpret it and help guide my thinking or change yours. You know, I'm not beyond changing the way that I think. Should you provide a way that uh, should you provide a point that really changes the way that I think that makes sense that's based on fact you know um but one thing we can't do is change history you know I, I'm not beyond you know let's talk about it you know you might not agree with it you might not you might agree that Columbus was the best thing that happened to the Americas but let's talk about all of those hundreds of thousands of people who lost their lives and their culture as a, as a result of that. So let's meet it, figure out a way to meet in the middle, you know. Um, again, giving you that autonomy to feel and think the way that you think, but not telling you no, you're, you're, you're extremely wrong for not thinking the way that I'm trying to teach this content. You know, we, these, the standards are, are good because they are a guide for us to be able to hit points, but there's so many different things that we can do within those standards, you know, uh, as educators. And again, like I said, I'm unconventional. I look at the standards and I blow them up, you know, and, and I figure out how I can do this 
but how I can do it and not make it boring. Because history can be, it, it can be boring. I've sat through some lectures that have been like, oh, is it over? Like my ears are bleeding as much as I love history. It's like, oh God. <laughs> but like so, a, lecture, a lecture isn't story. You know, a lecture is just like, you need to know this. It's not like, let me bring you in to an interpretation and we can create meaning. But there's a way, there's a way to do it. And I hate to name drop, but I'm going to do it. Um, Dr. Kelly Fanto Dietz, um, she, she wrote a book um, entitled Bound to the Fire. I mean, it's about Virginia cooks um, and enslaved cooks in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And she does all of, she has done so much work. She's taught um, African-American studies classes um, in California and Virginia. And I've sat through one of her lectures and Dr. Dietz comes into a lecture that you would think would be so boring and she blows your mind from the beginning because she frames it in a story. You know, she and it's, it's so much information in an hour that you get, but you're literally on the edge of your seat and you go through literally an emotional roller coaster. You know, she starts off real slow to kind of get your attention and to capture your heart. And then by the end of it or right in the middle, she gut punches you with the information and then you're stuck. It's like, whoa, well, what's next? And then at the end, she leaves you with almost like a call to action. The way she frames it is almost, almost like a sermon of sorts. Um, it, that call to action is, you know, either keep reading you know, because these resources right here will continue to help you or um, come and talk to me about any questions that you have. Whatever those, those actions are, you're willing to do it, you know? Like, it, it's, it's amazing. I've seen some of those awesome lectures like that, but I've also seen the ones that like, well, I'm just gonna get this information to you because I'm, uh, I'm tenured. <laughs> and you can't do nothing about it <laughs> or or like i'm meeting the standards i'm meeting the curriculum like here it is right yeah yeah i don't really want to teach this i've actually said that to my students um okay guys this week we have this particular standard it's not my favorite it's not gonna be the the, the best you know but let's let's do this together um and but this these are the reasons why it's not gonna be my favorite you know but I know you're not going to like it, but we can do it together. If I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> and then that kind of, you know, everybody understands. Yeah, it's going to suck, but at least we're going to do it together. <laughs> at least it's going <laughs> to suck and we all are going to agree on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, we can end up finding ways through, you know, through those standards that really are kind of drawn out and kind of not so good. You know, I wrote a blog post um, at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement in June, like mm -hmm. this, this wave of it. Um, and it said, if you're not doing history to make change, what the blank are you doing it for? <laughs> um, and, uh, and like, I love what you just said that, that she ended each lecture with a call to action because because I think that that is a really great way to think of your history lessons. And I've never really like 
thought of it that way. Like, I guess I've always just kind of implicitly thought that like the information was the call to action, but like the call to action as a way to end, I think is really powerful. So let's yeah. move to the last question because I think like the reason why I, I say that if you're not doing history to make change, like then why are you doing it is because I think that history allows us to be able to imagine, can imagine new futures. And so my work is on imagining a new we in that we have to imagine a past, a present, and a future with greater circles of inclusion. Because in Canada, we're a very multicultural society with a lot of immigrants, like the States is. And it's very easy for people to be like, okay, we're like, this is our history. This is our Canadian history that we need to tell you people that don't know it. Um, and, and like that us versus them is really problematic because often it's based on race and it's not actually based on migration status. And even if it is, even if your family has been here for five years, I still say that you're a Canadian, like that your histories are now built into Canadian history. Like we need to ensure that's there. So I say that we need to imagine a new we. And so I ask you, do you think that this moment, this 2020 year is gonna allow us to imagine a new we in better ways and different ways and ways at all and of course like when we started this I said I feel kind of embarrassed asking Americans right now because things are so divisive that 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 notion of imagining might not seem possible but imagining also comes down to creating and storytelling and so maybe you want to can you respond to a couple different of those elements as a way to end our time together yeah um I'm kind of, I'm not going to say kind of, I'm, I'm blessed in how I was raised um, in the country, separated from society, and didn't watch much TV growing up unless it was PBS or not public television um, channels like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, things like that. I was, I was sheltered to a certain degree. Um, so I feel like I was blessed. My family in general was the same way. I just asked my grandmother last night, we were sitting at the table having dinner and I asked her, we were watching the March on Washington. And I said, do you remember 57 years ago, the March on Washington? She said, not so much. And I was like, wait a minute, were you, were you under a rock? Like how, that was one of the biggest things she said, well, we didn't, I said, did y'all watch TV? Anything? She said, if we did, it was like Lawrence Welk or, you know, we would watch, watch wrestling or whatever. We were protected from, from that, the divisiveness of mm -hmm. America. Um, so that has shaped who I am as a person. So I have that protected side of me, whereas I have now this information field side of me. Our conversation would have been so much different had we had it when we originally scheduled it shortly yeah. following George Floyd's murder um, because I was battling with that. I was battling with um, how to feel as a black man in America who literally watched someone be murdered 
and no one cared, seemingly. Those in power. I battled with that, but I also battled with the idea of almost feeling guilty because I couldn't be there or didn't honestly, to a certain degree, have a desire to go and march and protest um, because I felt that there was a different way, a different approach. I supported those who did, but for me, that wasn't my cup of tea. Um, I felt that there were ways through art and education that we could capture the attention of those who were in power. Um, it was a really, really, really tough time and it is still very tough considering just a few days ago, another black man was shot seven times in his back and is now paralyzed. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm struggling with these things as I imagine this new we. Um, everybody's talking, but nobody's listening. In education, people are, colleges are, and universities are creating departments for African-American studies or Black studies out of the wazoo. And they have people who are not qualified to teach these courses, teaching these courses, because they have just the passion for it. When I say qualified, I mean, they, they have, they don't know what it is, you know, to be able to fight through these things. Uh, you can read about it in a book, but unless you've really been in the struggle, you don't know. I haven't been in the struggle necessarily, but I know what it is to be black in America. You know, I know what it is to stand in the elevator and I'm the only black person and it's three white ladies and they all clutch their purse tighter to them. I know what that feels like and I know what our students of color feel like whenever they are in a classroom being taught a Europeanized history that does not include them in the story. We have to include everyone. That's why I started out talking like I did about inclusiveness and putting the student in the driver's seat and learning and taking time to sit and listen to the stories of those students because the more we listen to them and their stories, the more we realize that what we're teaching could be a tool to really empower. We just have to find the way to use it. So say for instance, say, say um, props. Yeah, so I just thought about this. So say I have a screw that I need to, I need to um, put in the wall. I got a hammer, right? That hammer will, will put that screw in the wall, won't it? But imagine what this hammer is going to do to the drywall. Uh -huh. When I put that screw in the wall with this hammer, screws have these, these ridges, the screw things, and make it a screw. This is going to tear up the drywall, and the screw won't stay in the wall. But if I use the proper tool, it's just by chance I have this stuff in my office. <laughs> a drill. <laughs> I have the proper tool, a drill, to drill a hole first. And then the screwdriver to drill the screw into the wall. Using the proper tools, 
will create a lasting change. Now these curtains behind me, there are a few holes in the wall because I used the wrong tool to get a screw in the wall because I was in a hurry. I was ready just to get the stuff up just so I can say that I got curtains up so they'll look good behind me whenever I have my virtual meetings. And they do. But it took, thank you. I, I had to stop though because they were ugly. I made a mess and I messed up the drywall. And so I took time to think about it. I need something else. I need something different. And I think that's what we need to do as we imagine a new we. We have all the tools, but we need to reimagine how to use these tools. Hammering information into students' minds does not create a lasting change. But actually taking the time to do it right, getting to know them, getting to understand their stories and the stories around them, understanding their communities, will create a change that's beautiful, that's lasting, and that will impact change in other areas. So as we imagine this new we, that's what we have to do. And through storytelling, that's what I do. I level the playing field. I capture the hearts of the people with a component of my story that is synonymous through the crowd. And that is the story of family and love. Once I have your attention, then I can teach you the lessons. I can't expect you to learn if I don't have your attention. Imagine a new we is gonna mean that it has to be we mm -hmm. and not me. Many times we look at education as a teacher, as an educator, and we look at it about me. My scores, my standards, my this, my that, my class. I don't do that. It's our class. My first year of teaching, I said, this is my world. You guys are squirrels in it. And that was my worst year of education because they resented everything that I said. But the minute that I included everyone, we had a family meeting just about every day. And that would be whenever I did my announcements and did everything, checking in with them. Five minutes is all it took to let them know that I care. And these students are 24, 25 years old now. And they're doing well with families of their own. And they're begging me on social media, Mr. Williams, can you please come and just see my baby? I said, baby, we can't go outside right now. <laughs> Also, you just like aged yourself crazily. Well, yeah, I was young. I was I'm 37. I'm I'm not too old, but but these were students that were in middle school when I first started out. Right. So not the fourth yeah. grade. Yeah, not the fourth. I, fourth fourth and fifth grade is what ended my career in the classroom. Um, and it was not the students, it was the system that was about me right. and not we. And because it was about me, the system was about me, it was killing me, literally. And in order for me to be able to live for the collective we, I had to go. I couldn't take it. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to know those times. I knew when I was strong enough. And when I was, I did my best. But the times when I got to where that I knew that I couldn't handle it anymore, I loved my students, 
but I knew when it was time to go. I didn't even make it the whole year last year. I left in October, two months in. Wow. As much as I loved my students, and we grew to know each other and love each other, and I wanted to see that young man finish fifth grade. And it breaks my heart to know that I didn't get the chance to see his growth. But I knew within myself that I did everything that I could to plant a seed, and eventually he will grow. He will do well. And if the time, if it's right, we will see each other again. And I will be able to hear those stories later. Mm -hmm. But it's not about me. It's about the we. Yeah, and I, I think too, I, I mean, there's just so many things I want to say. Like all of that just was like, it was like amazing. <laughs> so thank you. Um, and like, I think of teachers that I've worked with, like white teachers who really are really worried about that me part. Like it's going to make me feel uncomfortable to talk about race in this classroom, especially because I'm the only white person in the classroom. Like all of my students are racialized students. And so like that fear, which some have called fragility, other have called systematic violence. <laughs> really prevents prevents moving forward and like i i think actually that that is kind of the thesis of my book but like you said it in a way that like i heard it so much more i heard it in a different way that like still blew my mind and i just like really want to thank you for that and i wanted no to also like talk about the little props that you brought up <laughs> and as a way to like segue to the end because I think we've talked over an hour now is mm -hmm. like when we talked about those statues at the beginning of the conversation and how we were saying like keep them up as a way to like demonstrate that like the pain of it and you know you have those holes in the wall behind you that can be when you're drywalling them or whatever, they can still be a point of conversation to be like, this is how I tried to rush it. This is how I didn't think about those tools. This is how I didn't think through the process. This is how I didn't think about the past times I've done this, to think about how it'd be best moving forward. And, like, and I knew better. <laughs> <laughs> right. And also you said like, we have the tools and I do think we have the tools, but I also just want to like throw out there that sometimes we don't have the tools like sometimes because of the way colonialism works the way white supremacy works the way patriarchy works like we have forgotten some of those tools and so we also have to create space to allow us to like learn about new tools or to learn from the past about the tools that we've forgotten I think that's such a key element of this and I hesitate to talk more about tools because I don't really know anything about it. Like my IKEA furniture is just built by like friends that I've asked. So it's hard to, <laughs> so it's hard to extend that metaphor too much. But like, but I, I mean, I think it was really powerful and I love a good prop. So thank you so much for this. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. No problem. So, so literally that's how I go through my classroom. Yeah. That's literally how I do. And like, if I if there's a point that's to be made, and I see something, like it's just by chance this stuff I didn't take back home, you know. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was like, hey, what's? 
but you know that's that's how because that that was not planned but most of our most of our strongest lessons are the ones that come unplanned um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as far as that's in my experience now you you have your phd or and all of that good stuff <laughs> i i told you business major <laughs> You know, and people have different comfort levels too, right? To get mm -hmm. to things, but it's also allowing the spontaneity to mm -hmm. allowing the conversations, allowing the people in the room to be able to move the conversation, right? Like I started this series with three questions saying to people like, it'll be 15 minutes, maybe 30. And now here we are, I've talked over an hour. We've covered a lot of different stuff. And those three questions, like, sure, it anchored, but, like, we were able to allow for a lot of room for that kind of movement mm -hmm. and for a business major to talk about tools and blow my mind. Like, I did not wake up this morning thinking <laughs> that was going to happen. <laughs> Tied to education, yeah. Yeah. So it's just the, it's, it's just the, way, that I, the way that I think. Yeah. No, it's yeah. great. And I'm out of the box. And I'm glad that we were able to do this. And it would have been a different conversation if we if we talked in June. But I think that right now, in this moment, going into the election, going into this really like scary world, some schools have now like gone back to remote because of outbreaks and stuff. Like I think this was the right time for the conversation. And <laughs> and it's also really funny that. It's not that late, and yet I'm in complete darkness. <laughs> um, and like, just again, like watching the seasons and seeing how they change and responding to that. Um, so thank you, thank you. This was wonderful. No problem at all. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Pandemic Pedagogy series of the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. My first book, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We, will be available in the latter half of 2020. Order on Amazon or through your local bookseller today.